So welcome to the latest episode of the Uncharted Territory podcast, where we discuss and reflect on the psychedelic revolution, extraordinary experiences, social change and, and consciousness. And yeah, delighted to have here as my guest today, Crispin Blunt. He was a justice minister, a longtime MP and British Army officer who has now set his sights since the last couple of years on drug policy. Really great to have you, Crispin. Very nice to be here. Thanks so much for your sustained interest in this. It's terribly important. Well, thank you. I mean, tell me, even from the intro that, that I've just spliced together, you know, about your life, it's a curious tale. How has it all come about? Well, I suppose I'm on a uh, conventional path so much as you can call a conventional path for an 18-year-old who has uh, then mapped out his uh, future life um, uh, to go into the army and then into politics um, at that precocious age. And uh, but I had a, a life plan to uh, postpone university for three years, uh, go uh, join the army as an ordinary uh, officer cadet entrance, um, and then apply for the civil universities board. Uh, so do three years at regimental duty or get trained in re and regimental duty, then off to university for three years, um, with the uh, then advantage of being sent to university as an serving army officer on a salary and you uh uh rather than having to pay pay fees which are paid by the army um uh, and then you're time barred for five years but you then have to stay in the army after you leave university and that in my mind was the moment i would then reassess whether i was uh really would i be good enough to be able to compete in the world of politics you know could i actually get elected to parliament because i didn't have really the slightest idea of how of how good the competition was or was not and uh, anyway, so, and that broadly is, is what happened in my side was an ordinary army officer. But uh, uh, so far as one anyone is an ordinary army officer, 27, 28, I decided to uh, pull a lever marks um, gamble uh, on trying to get into parliament and having to uh, torch the army career uh, in order uh, in order to do so. And uh, I got on the conservative candidates list quietly not telling anybody what I was up to and uh and I've been very lucky and it worked out and and so what was driving you to to get into parliament you know back then I mean now when I see you standing up and kind of you know, raising what some might call fringe causes whether it's drug policy or health yeah. is, is that, that something you just come into or, or or was that always always the plan and you were just biding your time uh the causes were, certainly weren't part of the plan. Um, and I think if you told me then that you're going to be uh, the leading voice for drug policy reform in the Conservative Party in, uh, when I started down this path, I would have um, thought you were probably certifiable. Uh, so it's a product of my experience um, as a politician. Um, and, and then having my eyes open uh, to what is going on in society around me and and then my judgment about the importance of the uh, of the issue. I got elected in my own right in 1997 in Reigate, uh, and conservative backbencher um, in opposition, uh, 13 years, long and hard years in opposition. Then a, I'm a junior spokesman uh, on the Home Affairs team, having done five years in the Whip's office, and we formed a government in 2010. And I found myself appointed to the justice team under Ken Clark, and uh, was the Minister for Prisons, Probation and Youth Justice and sentencing policy and it was there that i began to started over the next two and a half years to see firsthand uh the impact of uh drugs 
and drugs policy ergo on our uh, justice system and then to a wider extent the people that were then feeding into the custodial system because of their drug use started to come to the conclusion that uh, our drugs policy was really causing uh, much more harm than the drugs themselves um, and we needed to have a reset and a rethink. Um, however, I then stayed on the, I suppose, a conventional track. We got elected as chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee in 2015 um, and then got unelected in 2017 after that rather disastrous uh, general election when uh, the people handed uh, the country a parliament that disagreed with the uh, government on uh, Brexit. And so we had two years of uh, fiddling about um, between 2017 and 2019. But uh, one of the outcomes of that was I lost my chairmanship of the Foreign Affairs Committee because I was uh, a Brexit supporter um, and replaced by the hugely talented uh, Tom Sugenhart, who uh, been in Parliament five minutes, stepped up and uh, uh, crashed me out of what I thought was going to be my sort of uh, almost perhaps two parliaments, it might have been 10 years as chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, a grand panjandrum on the Foreign Affairs Circuit. And I had to work out what to do. And I, by coincidence, the government uh, published the latest iteration of its 10-year drug strategy the day I lost that election. And uh, I took part in a debate that followed on that just before the summer recess in 2017. And I decided, uh, actually, that this was a place that needed a conservative voice and that the, the uh, opportunity to do some real good here, to actually change the dial on our drugs policy, even just a bit, would do an immense amount of good given the scale of the harms that are, that are currently flowing from our drugs policy. Exactly. And and I recall you made quite a high-profile intervention in, in a debate on poppers. Although that, well, was, that, was, I mean, that was before, and I suppose that gives you... Uh, that uh, uh, is part of the illustration of the hysterics that then come from the tabloid press in particular, their coverage of a drugs policy. And none of this is new. Um... Uh, there's been probably the best part of 100 years of this in terms of the newspaper coverage, who are looking for the sensational, uh, looking for the headline splash uh, that implies, um, usually uh, reflects a wild exaggeration of uh, a situation and the, and the role of um, uh, drugs in it, and to create alarm and uh, concern amongst the public about, uh, about drugs. Uh, not a real uh, any proper consideration of the evidence of you know exactly what the uh, scale of the problem is, what the and what the uh, sensible options are for addressing uh, harms that come from uh, uh, drug use, and uh, for just an example of that, so we were faced with the uh, psychoactive substances bill in 2015 uh, 2016- uh, coming through its parliamentary stages, I had amazingly, by coincidence, been party to the uh, early conversations about the psychoactive drug inside government. And remember going as the Justice Minister to uh, the Home Office to a uh, meeting chaired by the then Home Secretary, Theresa May. The government was wrestling with this uh, problem of its own regulatory system, which was to ban something under a statutory instrument you then had to give its chemical composition and identify the drug to, to, to properly ban it. And of course, the uh, uh, in the world of psychoactive drugs, the chemists were moving much faster than, than the legislators and the, uh, the precise formulas were changing far too fast for the uh, 
uh, as soon as the government has worked out how to ban something, then something else rolls along to cause to cause the next problem. That's the issue the government was trying to solve. Um, and it all seemed perfectly reasonable from the inside at that point. And it was only later that it began to dawn on me that uh, it, was, it was an idiotic way of proceeding to try and, um, it, it, even to try and address this particular uh, problem of legislators trying to catch up with the chemists. The solution was the Psychoactive Substances Bill. Uh, at the start of the of the that going through its parliamentary phases in 2015, um, uh, I had come out to, in 2010 as as a gay man and had a quiet word with Mike Penning, who is the drugs minister, and said, "You're going to have a problem with um, the LGBT uh, community with this measure because of the proposed ban on poppers in it." And uh, he looked at me and said, yeah, your lot won't like it. Uh, so that's where I kind of stopped constructive engagement with the system. And as it got towards the end, uh, I decided to make my own intervention at that point, thinking I had some responsibility to, uh, to say something. And in a rather unplanned uh, brief seven-minute speech, I uh, outed myself as a Poppers user I had no sense it was going to get the attention that it did and found myself as the front page splash of the sun the following day. And that is entirely typical of the seriousness with which you know, these issues are, are approached, the exaggerations done, the rest. And, it's, and, it's, uh, and, and as you said, it's now supposed to be largely what I'm known for, but it was, it was some time before I was kind of, kind of got seriously engaged in drug policy in, in detail. I was just conscious of what the government was about to do was going to make things very much worse and was going to, uh, if you ban poppers, people would still want to use them, say we create an illegal market with all the uh, negatives that then flow from prohibiting something and you drive it underground and the demand still remains for it when you make it fashionable for a kickoff and, and the market doesn't go away, you just you just hand it over to uh, criminals who are or people who then become criminals who are outside any legislation and uh, regulatory structure, you can't protect people who are working in the business at, and you have, and you make allies of the criminal supply chain uh, or the customers. That in encapsulates what we managed to do with uh, uh, with everything else we prohibited. Quite, yeah, a very, a very cogent and lucid takedown of the war on drugs there. And so fast forward a few years and, and you found the, the conservative drug policy reform group. And at first, I, I believe that the focus was cannabis and around that time, the medical cannabis campaign well, the, the, um, taking place uh, in the UK, yeah. which ended up in their legalization. But recently, you know, the focus has turned to, to psilocybin and magic mushrooms. Well, the, the uh, I suppose the game changer in terms of the debate around drug policy is that up until about uh, 2015, you had people who were socially concerned with the uh, social impact of the criminalization of drug users, of all the things that have happened in the war on drugs and the unintended consequences, and uh, the voices raised against um, the outcomes were largely remote voices on the left uh, who uh, put their social concerns first and very nobly trying to uh, then uh, point out the consequences of prohibition. The other part of the uh, 
if you like, the casualty list from prohibition has been all the drugs we haven't turned into medicines of uh, some value or another, that it had become, it started to become clear that there was potentially an immense value in medicines derived from cannabis and following on uh, that, that on the medicines derived from the psychedelic class of, uh, class of drugs. And if you're thinking about um, you know, MS and pain relief um, and anxiety and stuff, cannabis has a uh, appears appears to have, and on the available evidence, a, uh, a strong probability that it could, in time, become a, uh, a decent market share. And the same is also true of the psychedelic class of drugs. Now, where we're on the, I believe the evidence it takes us on the verge of a major change in the effectiveness of uh, standard mental health treatments um, that finance and uh, investment interest have now started to get into these areas. So suddenly there was proper money um, from respectable investors having identified the, uh, the, the scale of the potential gain. And so there was, some, there was suddenly money kicking around in the public affairs space on this subject, which there hadn't been before. And so I then decided what I would actually do is set up my own think tank um, called the Conservative Drug Policy Reform Group Limited. Um, it wasn't to be part of the Conservative Party. I guess its targets was the uh, centre-right part of the political spectrum, the one most resistant to change in this area on the sort of polling data we've since gathered. I wanted to fill that gap and to, and to make a reality of the government's claim that we're going to have policy based on evidence. Um, so to so the people who own the knowledge and the evidence, let's get them closer to the policymakers. Let's make um, let's make the whole debate much more informed on the basis of reality, not on the basis of newspaper headlines. To my amusement, I suppose that the one of the rare journalists who is uh, still uh, against reform, Peter Hitchens, has um, part of his evidence is a collection of newspaper headlines. That's how he collects data about what is happening uh, as the consequences of improper drug use in the or what is illegal drug use uh, in the United Kingdom. There, there are concerns about drug use. Of course, there are. These are proper risks that have got to be put into the mix about how you best address them if you're shaping the, the policy. What you don't said about doing is making the situation uh, a whole lot worse, which is what we've managed to do by treating it in a very simplistic uh, uh, fashion which is nice and convenient for politicians who can say drugs are bad, they're banned, and then have nothing to do with the consequences. And, and we were discussing this before we came on air, because recently you spoke of your own experience with magic mushrooms, but but since then you've kind of been been reflecting well, I, on what um, you might have said. I, um, so there was a, a perfectly uh, straightforward um, interview with Matt Choi on Times Radio, who then... I finished it. We were asked about my experience. Did I had I uh, experienced um, them? And unwisely, I uh, just on reflection, I said yes. I used them. I used them in entirely legal and proper circumstances under uh, under the care of a therapist. But of course, all of that gets lost in um, you know, blunt stun magic mushrooms. And actually, the the use of psilocybin as a uh, as a as a drug under the control of a therapist with the doses being measured and all the rest of it is with hardly an uh, an irresponsible act. It, the personal uses then suddenly became the the issue that followed that that interview. 
Well, it's actually there is a much more serious conversation to be had about the, the whole policy. So, um, and it's one of the reasons why this area is so difficult for policymakers is because most policymakers will have the experience of most people in society is most of them will have done something illegal. Um, and if you're now a cabinet minister and you've been a journalist uh, in your past and you've been behaving the same way as all your mates have, and you've been doing lines of coke at the parties you've been going to and possibly even at work to keep yourself going during the day, I think a half of the, one of the reasons why London is a cocaine capital of the world is puts the pressure on the high flyers in the city of London um, uh, to be able to stay at their desk for 16 hours a day. And how on earth do you think they do it? But it's probably, it's probably the reason why we um, appear to be top of that particular World League table. Well, if you measure the water that's flowing out of the Thames once people um, um, pass the stuff through that system. Michael Gove, uh, then in his first leadership bid, uh, had prepped the answer to the question because he knew that there were witnesses to his cocaine use um, uh, who were amongst the journalist fraternity and uh, quite rightly had to anticipate the fact that that question would come. Now, Michael is very far from alone. Indeed, he will be in, in a, a majority of MPs at some point will have uh, smoked a split or um, uh, done something, which probably will have been witnessed by uh, other people. Um, and they will be you know, extremely concerned that that question will come out, which will take them out of the um, whatever competition it's in or whatever, that will become the issue for them that they have done something illegal. And the problem for policy is that therefore most people uh, run from drugs policy. This is a dangerous area to be personally engaged in. And so uh, in the policy debate, because of the implications for what, what it means about your uh, personal use. Yes. And so everyone everyone is then vulnerable to the personal question. Now, so my advice to uh, Parliament is, is on that basis, none of us should answer the personal question. We should all say, my whatever I have or have not done is irrelevant in any scientific or sensible way uh, to the policy conversation that needs to happen about the implications of our drugs policy as a country. And I, I managed to give an example of what not to do in that interview with Pat Shortly. Yeah, I, I guess what makes it remarkable is, as you've outlined, by hook or crick, a, a number of other MPs have admitted drug use, but... I believe you're the first to have kind of admitted consuming magic mushrooms. But but you said the, the, the it was kind wasn't of, illegal, kind of wasn't underwhelming. Illegal. Yeah, but it wasn't illegal in the jurisdiction I was in, so big deal. And yes, and the um the particular experience I had on the, the therapist uh didn't um uh, sort of make the breakthrough in enabling me to get to, well, I wasn't actually trying to get to grips with anything. There wasn't any trauma in my you know, I've had an amazingly blessed life. There's no there's no uh, or I'm so emotionally unresponsive that I haven't actually worked out what the traumas are that I need to get in touch with. Um, and so the general conclusion, I probably need a bigger dose to, uh, to break through to the, uh, to actually have a, uh, a trip that would enable me to look at myself um, properly, which is, as I understand it and express it, part of the, uh, the benefit of, uh, of a psychedelic that it, it gives you that option to get out of the mind space you're stuck in in your own brain and to be able to uh, look at your situation remotely it all makes sense to me in a, in a in a in a general way as to why the psychedelics ought to be able to provide that if, if this is the effect as to why they ought to be able to provide a uh 
part of the answer on people suffering from depression, for example, because all of us will have had mates who are suffering depression and you, you just want to shake them and say, you know, just, just you know, sharpen up for God's sake, get a grip. Um, can't you see your situation is actually great? What is you? All, all these positive things going for you and you're sitting there in this uh, cycle of misery. You're focusing on all the things that are uh, making you unhappy and the rest. And you're not you're not looking at the flip side of all of this actually why your situation is uh is actually not half as bad as you think it is. Um can't you can't you see yourself as as we see you? Um and if that's the ability of psychedelics to, to enable that and so that people can come to a view as to how to break out of this uh if you've got yourself stuck into a sort of downward spiral of misery where uh where the glass is always half empty and everything's uh getting south. Uh, to actually uh, look at the positive side of life and as to why uh, to give you the tools then to break out of the depressive cycle that you're in. So that, uh, which is uh, which is why I would, uh, in a sort of common sense sort of way, think I can see why these things work uh, scientifically. I haven't got the first idea how they work, how the, exactly they work on the receptors of the brain and why the chemical composition of why a particular psychedelic works in a particular way. I also feel much cleverer than I am to, to understand all that. Um, but I can uh, sort of understand at a, at a sort of common sense level enough for why one should be open uh, to the potential uh, that uh, as to why this could be a huge leap forward for psychiatry and psychology um, to have a, a pharmaceutical product that actually uh, would work to enable that therapy to work much more effectively than it does now. So, uh, address conditions like depression and trauma and anxiety and uh, and addiction and the rest. Totally, totally. Like, you know, obviously psychedelics encourage like feelings of kind of oneness and community. And so people roll their eyes when they hear people on the right are interested in it because they, they associate the right with like individualism, family and a, a certain kind of capitalism. What what do you I'm say to these people? I'm not quite sure how the politics of left and right, uh, I'd say density and natural fit here. It's, it's, it's more about freedom with responsibility. Um, like a co and, cognitive libertarianism. Well, yes, I would hope that the Conservative Party would see the party I joined had a torch of freedom as its logo. And freedom with responsibility, with responsibility for actions, is uh, is what I'm, I suppose, will be the central thing of what I'm trying to be about. If you're unwise enough to exercise your choices in a way that damage others, then you'll be held fully accountable for the consequences. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I hear you. And and so what what makes the UK so unique, I guess, in terms of the way change happens, the establishment and the class system and how this kind of plays with the economy in terms of if we look at the US, things seem to be moving a lot quicker over there. Yes, I had an interesting conversation yesterday, actually, with someone who was saying, actually, you're getting much more in the US. The federal system moves actually pretty basically slowly. Yeah. Um, but often driven then by the states, um, particularly in this area, uh, where the uh, changes have happened because the states have been quicker to pick it up, which is why cannabis law reform is being led by the uh, the states in the USA. Yeah. And then once it's got a sufficient momentum, then the federal system will, uh, I guess, will then follow. 
So what about in the UK? I mean, it's, it's left down to you and, and Jeff. <laughs> oh, and Amanda Fielding. The Countess of Weems and Ma. She's made a, yeah, she made a, has made, and also continues to make a, a, a splendid contribution in her, uh, in her space, but it's quite easy to write her off as an eccentric. Um, and uh, so she's sitting in a generation of Paul Flynn and Caroline Lucas as the advocates of drug policy reform uh, in the Commons. And obviously what Jeff Smith and I, uh, I hope we can achieve between us, is to bring this conversation into the mainstream. It's not some exotic area. This is actually something of interest to uh, everyone in the country who um, might be suffering depression themselves, anxiety, may have gone through some uh, trauma or uh, have people in their family with addiction and want access to uh, effective mental health treatment uh, that stands a sporting chance of helping them um, and actually addressing the, uh, the, the, uh, the condition rather than just its symptoms. Yes, quite. And I know you you launched your campaign, the PAR campaign, at Medicine Festival last year in, in Berkshire. Yeah. How how did that all come about? And how have you how have you kind of assessed the success so far of the campaign? I mean, there's been a few headlines. I know Boris Johnson got asked about it and was fairly sympathetic. And there was the debate the other day in, in, in Parliament. It's also, I wish um, uh, people would see the facts get it and understand it and get it and act um, when they have the power to do so. Um, it is just taking a frustrating long time to get uh, the arguments made, a level of understanding delivered. And it's not, and of course the politicians will always want to defer to the medical profession uh, when considering uh, issues of medical effectiveness. And we perhaps haven't quite appreciated that the medical profession is uh, horribly conservative. Um, and that's something yeah, I'm now, have learned over the last five years of being active in this area, is that the people who you think might be, uh, will be the thought leaders, are, uh, too many of them are absent. Um, but you know, thank goodness the Royal College of Psychiatrists has finally moved. Um, even it's tiptoeing in the right direction. But the, but the fact that it's going in the right direction is is hugely important. Yeah, exactly. There's, there, there, is, there is movement across the board, and with, with, with and it the, seeming... The march of Patrick Valance and at the uh, Hay Festival and things, all, all of that then will help politicians feel more confident about making change, sensible change in this area. Oh, what did what did Patrick Valance, he, I think he was the former chief scientific officer, what yeah. did he say at the Hay, at the Hay Festival? So he's speaking general, um, positively about the use of psychedelics, that, they, you know, the, that the opportunity here looked uh, look to him pretty large. And therefore, we, you know, we, should, we need to get on and do the research and grasp it. Lovely, yeah, that's promising. I guess it's the same with cannabis. The, the politicians you know, want the data, and now it's coming through, the, the, especially well, with psychedelics more so, there's a kind of avalanche of yes. studies coming yes. through peer-reviewed yeah. at the moment. But for so long, they yeah. were kind of kept in a straitjacket because of yeah. this this war on drugs so yeah that that that's what partly is has you know led people to be kind of hesitant to admit drug use today isn't it because of this stigma uh, well exactly uh
you know, I've understood the you know, splash I got from the sun is when I said I use poppers. Um, and the ability of the tabloids to then personalize this around the individual uh, uses and then carry all sorts of implications around that uh, has um, essentially stymied uh, intelligent evidence-based progress in this space over a hundred years. We've been driven in a direction which has actually done much, much more harm to society by um, uh, by the hysterics uh, coming from the tabloid press, which is designed to sell any scripts. Yeah, exactly. And we saw that with Prince Harry recently when he admitted to taking magic mushrooms and even ayahuasca and that it helped him get over yeah. the grief that he still held for the, for the death of his mother Diana. I mean, some yeah. of the press was very positive, but some some of it was just yeah, fa- fairly fairly dismissive. I don't think we should allow well, my profession should not allow good policy to be held for ransom by the sales agenda of an excitable newspaper. Yeah, quite exactly and we we didn't discuss this before. We're kind of doing this conversation in two parts, but you you never kind of said what what led you to um, I know it's in a legal environment, but to uh, take magic mushrooms. I'm going to follow my own advice. My experience on these things is as nothing to the science and everything else, whatever my experience might or might not be. So um, uh, it's not going to help the debate if I answer that question. Yeah, it, I, I, I understand, yeah. but So at least in, in an interview with a sympathetic journalist, I should... <laughs> I should follow my own advice to my colleagues by saying it's your experience, the stuff you have done in the past, whatever it is, is not relevant. What is relevant is the, uh, are the policy considerations uh, about, the, about uh, what we're doing now in terms of uh, regulations and the law and uh, whether our approach is doing good or harm. And there's... Uh, there is certainly a great deal of evidence that the current approach to drugs policy is doing a massive amount of harm. Totally, totally. I even saw a study that was released last week on opioid seizures in America, and they they studied a part of some small town, I think, in Alabama, and yeah. saw that you know overdoses jumped massively immediately after like law enforcement seizures because it you know people get their medicine taken off and they're having withdrawal symptoms and they they go around sort of weekly yeah. kind of looking looking for more more drugs and, and are kind of pushed into a even more yeah. illegal market yeah. than they, yeah. they might have yeah. been interacting with before yeah yeah you obviously as an as an mp have to consider the legal framework and the parameters of the debate that that we're in at the moment but for many people in the uk Magic mushrooms, you know, you can pick them anywhere. You can take them in your home. You can order them from Holland. You can order them from dealers. You can grow them yes, in grow so, bags. So, uh, not all uh, uh, narcotics. We're in a place where we uh, create allies for the criminal supply chain amongst uh, drug users. The criminal supply chain isn't remotely interested in the health and outcomes. Uh, for the people who are using their product. And if you can't be in a place where individuals can't exercise uh, responsibility to their own actions, make an intelligent and uh, assessment of uh, what they might or might not do to their body, make decisions knowing uh, the consequences. Actually, if you let people 
make decisions for themselves. Surprise, surprise, most people will make good decisions for themselves. Yeah, exactly. Someone told me recently in the context of Texas, what happens in a man's head is his own business. And I guess magic mushrooms are like special in, in the UK context because they do kind of grow everywhere. It's kind of the people's psychedelic to, to some extent. Well, uh, yeah, well, I wouldn't be confident I could recognize one. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, I, I think they grab my garment, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> The stem, the stem is kind of brown and not very sticky, and the head is kind yeah. of almost like a nipple, and it's like grey. Yes, they're called but, um, liberty I'm sure, caps. I'm sure, I'm sure there are other mushrooms that are rather similar. Um, and not being a, a mushroom expert, I would, uh, I would hesitate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an in, it's an interesting history. I don't know if you're so far across it, but you know, pe- folks didn't really know that there was psychedelic fungi growing everywhere until the 1950s when there was an article in in life magazine or after this this amateur mycologist had gone to see well to witness and participate in an indigenous ceremony in in mexico but throughout the 19th century in journals scientists and academic folk here had had written you know on several occasions about these very weird experiences they'd had you know foraging yeah. and picking the wrong thing you know, eat, eating them and just having this kind of totally incomprehensible experience. Yeah. Uh, which is, I mean, and obviously the interesting development I've seen, I think it was in the Sunday Times yesterday, but what's happening in Australia, well, I hope they're not going to get it wrong by uh, going in too much of a hurry and then it being used as an example as to, as to why there are potentially problems with it, but, um, but we'll see. Exactly. I mean, it's quite striking how quickly Australia have moved ahead, even within a fairly kind of rigid framework that I guess is similar yeah. to the medical cannabis stuff in, in the UK. Yeah. And Canada are also opening a kind of compassionate access scheme. I mean, there is the real risk that the UK does get left behind on this. There is. And as a country that wants to be a uh, bioscience leader, um, we should not be left behind. We have the capacity to lead on this. And that's why it needs gripping at the highest level. So, so what is it? I know I asked you kind of about it earlier, but do you, do you think do you, can you identify any particular characteristic why the UK is falling behind? What what anachronism explains it? Obviously, the responsibility must stop with the politicians. It's the uh, cowardice, conservatism uh, class. It's an issue politicians don't want to engage with. Uh, I think it's significant because it's dangerous personal space. So uh, avoid it. Uh, that if you take a balanced approach to it, uh, um, rather than a simplistic drugs are bad, they're banned approach, um, you potentially could be getting yourself into uh, a difficult territory which you don't really understand. And that's and the science and the research here is obviously is terribly important. And it's trying to you know, the work I'm trying to do is to is to connect the two. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, is then to you know, get my colleagues to understand this is actually something where there's a a big opportunity because of our the relative strength of our uh, our economy. Um, uh, not least in the pharmaceuticals, we ought to be able to we should be able to which is um, and our uh, inventiveness. Uh, we ought to be able to do something with this. Um, and the UK. Absolutely. Now, as the European Union, we can we can regulate this ourselves. 
um, um, and if we if we make reducing uh, if we balance reducing harm uh, together with uh, the positive opportunities that come from uh, a more effective uh, pharmacopoeia in the hands of doctors of both for mental, mental and physical health, so much the better. Yeah, and obviously we've we've got David Nutt here, who's respected around the world. There was yeah. Robin Carhart Harris. I know he's now moved yeah. to the states, but yeah. obviously the the well, research and losing and losing him is a that's an indicator that things are not going in the right direction. So if the US does regulate psilocybin in the, in the next couple of years, I mean they think it will be MDMA next year because they'll yeah. have like two phase three trial data. I mean, can you can you see psilocybin? getting legalized at least medicinally in, in in the uk within the next five years is that possible i hope so i don't know so but i think if we can if it's happened in australia i there's no reason why it can't happen here and it's particularly for like the anglos the australia canada the states also all fields new zealand we should be able to uh have you know, confidence in this space together i would hope and it comes at a time as well where the tide seems to be shifting against or at least a more critical viewpoint on on the, the widely prescribed pharmaceutical SSRI anti antidepressant drugs. Yes. yes. Danny Kruger uh first yeah, took an interest in the subject. Um it was his anxiety that we were just gonna produce another drug that we were gonna get hooked on. Um and having walked him through the arguments, and then he came and spoke in support in the uh, in the debate on psilocybin. And it's politicians like Danny, one who you know, who, is, who are, uh, as he said, he, he and I are not on the same wing of the party. He's uh, religious, I'm not. Um, uh, he sort of views about the family and things, uh, as you alluded to at the beginning, <laughs> which you find more comfortable than I do. Um, yeah. And uh, but uh, but he's serious and thoughtful um and uh as most as policy makers ought to be hopefully you know these folks can kind of put aside any anxiety they might have about their own you know personal use coming coming to the forefront because i, I seriously well, yeah, doubt many so many people have, have experimented we've, with we've it a, we, we, which is why we've got a part of personal use as a, uh, what politicians have done is not relevant to this conversation and shouldn't be. And if it becomes so, then whoever's reporting it, the point of reporting themselves, they're not helping. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I want to, so which is what I want to try and get across to my colleagues. Look, this is this is uh, this is an important space to be involved in. Your experience is not uh, 